264 at Chess Podcast. This is David coming at you live all the way from the great state of Illinois. Joining me on the podcast is a new chess ball author, former poker player, data scientist. Please welcome to the show, Fide Master, Nathan Solon, well, to the show. Nate, how's it going? Good. Thank you. Uh, good Good to be back. I, I was just thinking about how far is Nebraska from Illinois, and it's I actually have no idea, but I have a feeling it's one of those things where you think it's close and it's actually like 12 hours or something, but I, I, I honestly don't know. You're, you're in Omaha, right? Yeah. So Omaha. So if you take the California Zephyr on the Amtrak, I think it's like you leave at two and you arrive at like 11, but there's some stops along the way. So basically, yeah, I think it's like eight hours on the train from Chicago. You're here because you have ridden a chessable course on the ready. Yeah, that's right. So I can I can sort of give you the big big picture idea behind that. Um, yeah, so so it is it's a repertoire for white. Um, it is a full repertoire in a hundred lines. It's part of this series they're doing called a hundred repertoire. So the entire course is a hundred lines. That's you know by opening course standards, it's really not a lot. It's like very manageable to learn. You could um you could learn all the lines in a weekend. Um, I mean, obviously you're gonna want to. Play it in some games, practice it, understand the positions, but it's it's quite manageable. Um, and it is the ready, so it starts with one knight f3. And uh yeah, I kind of took some inspiration from computer chess here of well, well, from data and from computer chess. So if you look in the in the lead chess database of the amateur data, what you tend to see is uh knight f3 seems to score quite well. Um a little bit better even than like E4 or D4, uh, depending on the rating range you look at, but like generally quite well, but it's way, way less common than those other first moves, especially again at like an amateur club level, you know, 1800 or 2000 Lee chess, which corresponds to, you know, maybe 1600 to 1800 FIDE, USCF, that, that ballpark, E4 by far the most common move, like over 50% of all games, Knight F3, is clocking in at around 5%. Wow. So that, that was something I had noticed a long time ago and always been a little intrigued by because it's like, all right, if I can play this move that's only played in 5% of games, you know, how prepared for that can my opponents be at that level? Um, You know, they're, they're facing E4 more than 10 times as often, right? And also, I just think Knight F3 is a good move. And that, like, that's where... The computer part comes in. So Alpha Zero, like, you know, DeepMind has done all these papers about Alpha Zero, but some where they go through sort of what it's really learning. Um, and they did one where they show it's the the evolution of its first move preference as over the training run. So it's like it works by playing itself a gajillion times. And it starts knowing nothing about chess except the rules. And then it refines its strategy by playing itself until it's like incredibly, incredibly good. So they compare it to human history. So in human, if you go back in human history, like El Greco or whatever, everyone played E4. Like it started out, everyone played E4. And gradually people started to play like D4, C4, Knight F3. But um, human opening theory is still dominated by a few moves, especially E4. Uh, but in contrast, Alpha Zero, it actually, when it starts training, it plays all 20 lethal first moves equally often. Um so, you know, pretty quickly it realizes like F3 is terrible. G4 is terrible. You know, sorry, hey. Joe players. It's not good. It's really a very <laughs> bad. It's a very bad move. It's probably losing by force. Um, 
but it's still like way more sort of balanced, like playing a lot more different first moves, including knight f3. So there is some randomness in that training process. So what it sort of settles on is its favorite moves is not the same every time. So it tends to like d4 quite a lot, but then be like between e4 and knight f3, it can kind of go either, depending on the training run, it can go either way, but basically it seems like they're pretty close. So that was like the basic inspiration is in human chess, knight f3, super, super rare. No one's really that prepared for it, or at least, I mean, if you play a grandmaster, they'll be prepared for it. But like, if you play your average club player, most of them are not going to have like very detailed preparation against one knight f3. Um, But it's just a good move. I think it's like, in chess terms, it's a pretty comparably good move to e4 so, so i i don't know i just think it's a good move that is like quite underplayed in human chess history especially at the club level right now i also have um this master class coming up on chessable which is actually about playing against the isolated queen pawn so it's it's kind of a tie-in with the course because in a lot of the lines i recommend we give black an isolated queen pawn to play against that weakness so um yeah this is also on chessable if you want to learn about some of these middle games, you know, not not only if you're using my opening repertoire, but I mean, an isolated queen pawn obviously is a super common structure in like many, many openings. I mean, there's logic there for sure. You develop a piece, right? Then the question just becomes, would you rather control the center first or develop your pieces first? But it's not like a knight f3 is like knight c3 or something uh, where you're kind of blocking a pawn like c4 that you'd want to push. So it, it from that perspective, knight f3 makes a lot of sense because typically... You know, if we imagine our average club player e4, e5 game, right? You play e4, e5, and then you're playing knight f3 right there because that's the easiest piece to develop on the king side and really the easiest piece to develop in general. Yeah, um, well, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, because knight c3, that knight on c3 um, could actually be awkward in some common setups, but knight f3, I mean, that's going to be a, like you're rarely going to regret having a knight on f3. That's just a really solid square for a knight. One thing that I... Because I have actually tried to play the the ready because um, I'm a d4 player and I thought maybe I'll throw in some knight f3 in there to kind of switch it up to pump fake my opponents. Um, but I've noticed you can get uh, what I... you like. I guess what I would call it is like get move ordered where you know, you're trying to play a certain system and suddenly your opponent can kind of trick you back if they're well prepared, where they can like figure out how to throw you into a slob if you're not careful, um, or like some deep line of like the Queen's Indian and stuff like that. If you're again, if you like don't know it, but is that really a problem that you're gonna face at the club level? As for 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 white, you mean? For like if you're playing, oh, if there's mm -hmm. some line against black, let's say that you hate playing against. Mm -hmm. Let's say like me, I'm a D4 player, so there are certain lines that I can avoid with the white pieces. Um, like the Grunfeld, for example, I can just completely avoid it if I want to because of like the specific opening that I play, or they'll have to play some like weaker like Neo Grunfeld kind of thing. Um, but if I'm playing Knight F3 and I don't know what I'm doing, um, uh, and even if I do know what I'm doing, I think there's some ways that your opponent could like move order you. Um, yeah, well, so there are there are for sure a lot of transpositional possibilities. Um, to D4 openings, also C4. Also, even e4 sometimes, like, you know, knight f3, c5, e4, you're playing potentially just an open Sicilian. Exactly, yeah. Um, so that is, that's something you can do um, with knight f3. That's, 
that's not so much the focus of my course because I think um you know this whole idea of like move ordering people out of their openings I think that's more relevant at like the IM or GM level than at the club level because that's really it assumes you know in advance what your opponent plays like you have a lot of information on them a lot of their games and and that you have the sort of time and wherewithal and capability of playing different setups that you can do all these very nuanced tricks um so i mean it's definitely a thing you can do and i think once you learn learn this core repertoire like you're going to have the option to expand it and do some of that trickery in different ways um but my approach you know at least for this course it's less about move ordering back into different main lines to mess with your opponent and more of just going for a core setup that I think a lot of opponents won't be ready for. So I'm actually rarely transposing into like E4 or D4 main lines. There are like one or two spots where I do because I just think it's the best option. Um, but my approach is more so going for this setup on the king side where what I'm looking to do, unless... Um, black really forces me to do something different with how they're setting up is to play knight f3 g3 bishop g2 and castle and just form that nice fianchetto on the king side so it's a little i was a little inspired by the london system there which i know like many people are sick of unless they're playing it in which case i guess they still love it but i think like part of why the london system is so insanely popular amongst like club players adult improvers is having that setup of like d4 bishop f4 build the pawn triangle it's kind of like a safety blanket that that you just kind of know your first few moves and you know you're going to be able to play the same setup and it's going to be pretty solid and pretty effective against most things so like i kind of took a page out of the london's book and said like this setup with knight f3 g3 bishop g2 castles it's like very solid very harmonious your king side pieces are developed they're working well together your king is very very safe and you know, okay, so you mostly are are pretty solid on your first five or so moves. Um, not always. It's it's not like a total system repertoire. There are definitely some black responses where. We're I mean, it's change, hard, but, right? Yeah. Because like when you have a knight coming out, but you're not actually taking control of the center with your pawns. Like, you can't just like, you know, play the same stuff all the time. Sometimes there's actually things you need to respond to in the center, or there are big threats that that come out of nowhere because you're giving your opponent that that time, right? Yeah, um, you you do give Black a fair bit of leeway, but um, that's sort of like the core setup that I go for a lot. Um, but yeah, there there's some there's some different things. Like for example, um, Knight F three D five G three C five Bishop G two Knight C six. In that position, I delay castling. I play D four immediately, and play essentially a reverse Grunfeld because I don't you know. To, I, I don't like to black to take like the whole center too easily just playing c5 d5 e5 all in one move like you can play like that you can just let black do that and play a king's indian attack um but the way i like to play it is kind of disrupt black's development a little bit more than that and present you know don't just let them take the center and develop their easy pieces very peacefully kind <laughs> of disrupt them like present them with some unusual unusual problems early in the opening and yeah there's a few different places like against um against knight f3 against one g6 i think that's the that mm, there might be one other place but but i actually recommend two e4 there that's that's like one of the only times i i like to transpose into an e4 opening which like you know but i do say like okay if this just terrifies you like you can just play two g3 it's totally fine um but the logic there is knight f3 
typically introduces like a slower, more quiet game, you know, so black can respond with G6, like very sort of casually Fion Kettoing, not really controlling the center. But then we can actually kind of hit the gas pedal again and just go right back into an E4 opening. And then black's only options at that point are essentially to play G Bishop G7, let us play D4 and take the center. And now they're just playing a modern, which I mean, you know, if they play, okay, but, but, you know, if you, if you get move ordered into the modern, that's very dangerous. Yeah. Or C5, and then they're playing a hyper accelerated dragon. So it's like, we don't have to learn like an entire E4 repertoire. We just need to have a system against the modern and the hyper accelerated dragon. And that's really not too bad. Yeah. I mean, it's the hyper accelerated dragon. Also, like, I think if your opponent is starting with one G6, against knight f3 they either know everything about the hyper accelerated dragon for their level or they know nothing like <laughs> yeah and i mean uh, what i've found is, and, and again like part of the the big idea of starting with knight f3 is a lot i mean i think a lot of players have literally no preparation against one knight f3 like they'll just be improvising for move one which is yeah exactly yeah, that's me raising my hand, hand. Yeah. <laughs> exactly which is like i mean even like strong even like experts even masters potentially have like you know, most people I think are ready. Obviously, they're ready for E4. Uh, you know, most people are at least a little bit ready for D4. But then once you start talking about Knight F3 and C4, there's a lot of chess players who really don't have a whole lot of preparation there, which kind of makes sense because those moves are far more rare. But, um, you know, that's kind of an opportunity in the metagame that you can take advantage of. And these this course, I have actually done one of these 100 uh lines like the 100 opening 100 repertoire thing from chessable i think it was a king's indian one by i want to say alex kolovich um, okay for for black yes because i was experimenting with the king's indian and you know it, it went about as well as every king is indian experiment goes like you either really love it or really hate it um i was swinging between the two way too erratically to the point where I was like, you know, this is either really good or really bad for me. I guess I... the Kings Indian is it's kind of a feast or famine opening, right? Cause the, like when you win, it can be like, you know, you sacrifice everything, you checkmate them. It's great. But then like you have some games where you just get like sat on and it's just very depressing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's, it's like the most, and those are the kind of thing, those are the kind of losses that make me just like want to not just quit chess, but really quit uh, other things as well. Like quit playing, <laughs> like quit anything that just gives me pleasure in life. Like honestly. Um, but what I will say is one thing I like about these repertoires a lot, like let's say Kings Indian, for example, and this was this course was fantastic. It's one of the chessboard courses that I've like really like finished every single thing that I've wanted out of it because it's so concise. But uh, it really focuses on concepts, and for even for something like the King's Indian, which is just a landmine of theory, usually, um, like I was able to get all the main ideas of the King's Indian that were relevant, like a lot of interesting sacrifices and stuff like that. I learned those patterns. I'm not learning every single line like, you know, down 20 something moves. I mean, I'll I'll go through it in the course once or twice, but you know, the concept is there. That's really what matters. And um I think all the more so my my intuition, but I haven't taken the course yet, but my intuition with the ready is that it's so much more of like a kind of a system. It's so much more flexible, I should say, that I think that a course like this would be extraordinarily effective. Yeah, I think so. And I I've, I've been getting good feedback so far. Like people have sent me some nice games that they've won. Um, yeah, I think so. I think, well, I think people like, 
the amount you need to memorize before you can start playing an opening is really so much less than people think it is. I mean, it's like if you're playing black against Fabiano Caruana, like, okay, sure. But like if you're playing most people in the world, even up to a master level, yeah, you, the game's fairly decided in the opening. Like, know some key lines, know some ideas, but one way or another, like, you just have to play chess at the end of the day. So I don't, yeah, I think I think for most players in most openings, like, memorizing huge numbers of lines is really not a good use of your study time. However, I think a lot of people, like adult improvers, your chess punks and all that, I think they, you know, it's... It's it's intimidating to get into opening. Openings are hard. They're really, really, especially you want to learn like a serious opening or something that you actually will stick with. That's not just like three moves and then see what happens. So yeah, and I think um, well actually I'm you know I even fall victim to it myself sometimes because so I have I have a tournament coming up this weekend which is going to be my first over the board tournament in over a year actually, and I'm even uh, you know I did have a little like freak out about certain opening lines where I sort of woke up in the middle of the night in a panic of like oh like no I'm not ready for this I'm not ready for this and whatever you know and it's like I kind of reviewed those just to allow myself to feel a little more confident but like in taking a step back in reality the chance that some exact line that I'm worried about like will appear on the board and and some line I've prepared is is going to be really relevant is really probably very low mm-hmm you know tend to get surprised you know at, at, at some point or other you're out of your preparation and yeah you just have to play chess so what prompted you to go back over the board i want to say that this is something i asked you about a year ago if you were ever planning on playing a tournament but i know that there was a lot going on for you back then um because guys i actually did interview nate on the podcast last year uh which you should check out but i think you know you were moving uh it's, i think you hadn't even moved to nebraska at that point or you were like just moving and yeah, uh, I don't remember exactly what it is. I think I'm I'm coming up at on like two years uh here in Nebraska. So it it probably would have been around when we were moving. Yeah, so you're playing over the board. What what prompted you to say this yeah. is the tournament I'm gonna play? Well, I mean, one thing is just I do I do enjoy playing over the board. Um I I do also find it stressful, like like Magnus, right? But um you know, I I think it, it does tend to be a good experience. Like, it's very stressful while you're playing, but I, I generally find it's a good experience after the fact. But maybe even the bigger thing was um, I really wanted to be a better coach. And I think if you only do coaching and you never compete, um, you do kind of, like, lose sense of what it's like to play in those over-the-board tournaments and how difficult it really is, not only on a chess level, but, like, maybe even more so on an emotional level. Um, so I definitely didn't want to fall into that trap of it just being like, you know, Hey, what's the big deal? You just go, you play some good chess moves, like, you know, cause it's, it's never really like that. Um, so yeah, I wanted to make sure I was still having that experience of experiencing the stress and the pressure of an over the board game to be sort of in touch with those feelings. And it's, a, do you play against anybody over the board and do you, even if it's just like friends and stuff like that, or is this really like your first true over the board experience and you know however many months or years um pretty rarely there is um just a couple weeks ago there, there's a club here in omaha called the the spence chess club so i went over there and they they have like they actually have the, these little tournaments you know like rated tur- tournaments with pairings and everything so 
the week I went, it was like 15 minute with a five second delay. So I played sort of a very quick um, over the board tournament. So I got to do that. Um, I've had a few other things where I've like, you know, met up with people for a few games. Um, but yeah, over the past year, it's actually been probably only played on um, a physical chessboard like a few times. Like <laughs> the the person I played on a chessboard the most with is probably my son, but he he's like one year old. So he's just like smashing the pieces and putting them in his mouth. So yeah, very little experience over an actual chessboard. And um, is this the Alto tournament by any chance that you'd be playing? Yeah, that's that's the one I decided. Um, I was kind of asking around like, hey, like what would be a fun tournament to do? And everyone who had been to the previous installments of this just loved it. It seems like so this is in um this is at the Charlotte uh chess club and Alto is uh at least 21. So it's you know grown-ups old it's like it's like the adult swim of chess tournaments, which I do like honestly I'm, I'm you know not to like preserve my rating or avoid playing kids or anything like that. Like I I I know some people really don't like to play kids. I I honestly don't mind, but um, I wanted to do something that was like fun and have a social aspect, you know, meet some of my friends from chess Twitter and all of that. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, it's, you know, I don't mind playing against the chess, like a 12 year old, but I don't want to hang out. You know, I'm not going to like have a drink with a chess, a 12 year old after the game. So yeah, it's, it's just like um, a tournament with a little bit more of like a fun social atmosphere. Yeah, I actually, I I had mentioned this on the podcast. I was hoping to come, and like my schedule didn't end up like uh, like permitting it. But I do agree that it is like the last over the board tournament I played in the final round. I just got like I was completely winning. Got like you know got swindled, lost the game, and my opponent is like a young girl, and she's just like kind of looking around the playing hall for like her dad because it's ten p.m. and she doesn't want to look at the game obviously because it's like. 60 something moves and just like super stressful um whereas i think if it was like another one of the university of illinois students that's like something that i could just sit there and talk for an hour and then like offer to like you know look at it you know over drinks or something like that like it, it just it kind of changes the whole dimension of how you feel about the tournament after so it, it seems like a great event and the charlotte chess center has also seems like in the last year or two is really becoming a uh, marquee place to like play and study chess so yeah it's gonna be my first time there but um yeah, I'm excited. It seems like, you know, they're very innovative with tournaments like this. Um, a lot of good, you know, Peter Giannato's, like his book was really cool as well. So I think they have a good sense of what, you know, just, just what chess players are looking for, how to run a good event. I think is Peter Giannato's also the guy who does chess underground podcast? Oh, I don't know about that one. Um, they, yeah, yeah, he's he's the director of the, the Charlotte Center. He has... um. I think it's called everyone's first chess workbook. Um, like really good beginner book. What would you say is uh for your chess book course? Um, what would you say the target audience is for that? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I would say like very broadly intermediate players. So really anything between like a beginner and a master level player. Um like for, for people who are, you know, if you're truly beginning, like starting out, like building your first opening repertoire at that point, I think it makes sense to keep it really, you know, go with those classic opening principles of control the center, bring out the pieces. So, you know, if you're truly just starting out, I think starting with like one E4 or maybe one D4 is a great way to go. And then, you know, if you're for, for like masters and above, 
you probably have a lot of your own opening preparation already. Um, but it's really like pretty much everyone in between. So club players, adult improvers, uh, intermediate players, like whatever, whatever you want to call that, that sort of big range. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not really a beginner repertoire because the idea is to be a little tricky, um, a little off the beaten path to kind of wrong foot your opponent. So it's like, you know, it's a bit of like a curveball of a repertoire, but it's, if you don't, if you don't have a fastball, then you kind of, the curveball is not really what you need to be thinking of. Um, but I think that's, that is kind of the range, um, you know, 1600, 1800, 2000, kind, kind of somewhere in there is, is what I'm thinking of. And that, that was also where I was like, one way I was choosing these lines is definitely looking at those Lee chess stats, what scores well in practice. And you, you can find lines that really score like 60, sometimes even 70%, which so, so, you know, it's like, that's really an indication that players at this level are really struggling to meet that. Um, so I definitely have some of those lines in the repertoire. And I think, um, you know, it, it can work for stronger players as well. Cause like, you know, I've been playing this in blitz, like, you know, I have wins against international masters, grandmasters. So like, it can definitely work. Um, if you're an IM or a GM, you know, you're probably going to want to like flesh, like a hundred lines is probably not going to do it for you, but I think, um, it's a good starting point. And, uh, for, for a lot of club players, it's like, if you, if you know these hundred lines and you understand them and you get a little practice in some blitz and rapid games, um, I think you can use these lines like very effectively in a, in a classical tournament. I also, um, you mentioned that you beat uh, Grandmasters. I did actually want to ask you that about your win against Hikaru Nakamura. I don't know if you knew that I was going to where I was going to go with it, but you you beat him in title Tuesday. Um, yeah, that was that was super interesting because I've actually known Hikaru for a long time. Like we, he's like a few years younger than me, but we were kind of growing up and like you know playing in a lot of these national junior tournaments at the same time. Well, there's that funny tweet I think where you mentioned that uh, you lost some uh, you lost some game to him uh, in an end game that was completely completely drawn, and you hung a piece. And then he responded that oh, it was actually like a different way in a different game. So basically, what th- this is like in one of these national junior tournaments, where the, you know there are these huge tournaments where like everyone comes from all over the United States, right? I, I um, this might have been the middle school one. But basically, I, I played Hikaru, like, who then, like, Hikaru was not Hikaru then. He was not, like, world-famous Hikaru. He was just, like, a very talented kid, you know. But we had this this long game, and it ended up with, I had king and bishop versus king, knight, and pawn. And, like, you know, there's nothing, it, it's, like, totally drawn. His pawn's not very far advanced. My bishop's controlling the square in front of it. So if he ever pushes that pawn, I can just take his pawn. No mating material, right? Um. So I expected him to just take a draw, but he actually just played on and I kind of lost my composure and started moving really fast and just hung my bishop. Um, so I lost that game. But yeah, I think um, in my mind, I, I sort of conflated two different games we had played, like maybe one in an elementary school and one in middle school or something. And like he probably remembered it more accurately than I did. But basically, yeah, the the hanging the bishop was was like the part I remembered. I also just want to read the words from the man himself. When Nate, you tweeted on January 26th, give me your best argument as to why you personally are responsible for the 2023 chess boom. 
And Hikaru said, The best argument I have is that if you had not hung your bishop against me in the Nationals all those years ago, then none of this happens due to the butterfly effect. Yeah, that was... It, it was a funny comment, although I do... I have to feel... I, I feel like Hikaru would have done it anyway because it was like that killer instinct that he showed. I mean, I think that to play on to like like to the absolute death in a, in a clearly drawn position, I mean... I do think there's something to that. Like, that's part of why he's so good. Um, it, it has to be. I mean, even I think with that game uh, that you beat him in title Tuesday, I mean, he he could have resigned so early and he just kept going, kept going, kept going. Uh, you very rarely see him like short of like a queen blunder or some like disgusting mm-hmm. trap that he falls for. You almost rarely see him just kind of resign um, in blitz these days. Yeah. And I was, um, you know, I was really happy that I was able to convert that game because that's like, that was that's been one of my big weaknesses in blitz is like finishing off those those winning positions. And I actually have, you know, I have some nice grandmaster scalps, but I also have a lot of like very depressing, like non-wins. Like I was like I had a position that was like plus nine against like Grandelius, and he basically couldn't move a single piece, but somehow I fell for like the one trick in the position. Um but yeah, to to win that against so like basically the way the game against Hikaru won was like you know, he was outplaying me. I was playing kind of bad, but like at some moment, um, he when he sort of went in for the kill, he missed like a very important move, and then he was in a terrible position. But from there, there was still like a lot of work to do. So I was definitely really happy that I was able to sort of control the game without very much time on my clock, and you know, and convert it to a win. Because like, I mean, Hikaru is maybe the best blitz player in the world, but like, I would say he's definitely like the trickiest. Like, you know. From a losing position, I feel like he's got to be the best blitz player in the world. I think he's the greatest for- blitz player of all time, but uh, online anyway. But um, yeah, but yeah, I mean to 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 do that against him. Uh, now you can do that against Grandilis next time. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of it's just like keeping your composure. But, do you get I mean, nervous also- when, like when you play somebody? You know, your feet and masters are obviously very strong, but when you're playing like a you know you. Of course, in the pool and blitz, you inevitably run into people who are like way stronger than you. Do you, do you get like, because I know me, like I'm at a level now where I, you know, one in a hundred games, I'll run into a national master and I always get nervous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to beat them. Well, you but know, I when nervous. I, um, the place where I play like these really strong guys is, is usually titled Tuesday uh, because like my blitz rating is typically in like the 2600s. But a lot of these guys are, you know, 2,900 plus. So if I'm just randomly putting up a seat on chess.com, I'll rarely get paired against like, you know, a super strong grandmaster. But I feel like Entitled Tuesday, it's so, um, you know, there's so many incredibly strong players playing and you kind of know it's coming. I mean, that's like, that's why you play in the tournament. Um, so I, I'm kind of in, in that tournament, I'm able to just be like, you know, more excited and like, you know, hey, I have nothing to lose, so this is just sort of like a fun opportunity. Um, yeah, it is actually. It's I. It's a tournament I haven't been able to play in that much recently, just because like I have to. Basically, I I'm pretty much on full like childcare duty Tuesday mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, but it is a great tournament. I I hope I'm able to like go back and play some more of those. Just just talking about it right now, I'm like, hey, that is pretty fun because like I've gotten to play. I mean, Hikaru obviously, but I mean, Cramnet. Like I got. Kramnik, I pretty much got like destroyed with like no hope, but but still, it's like it's cool to get to play against Kramnik. Um, I mean, a lot of other grandmasters. 
but your priorities don't seem like they're in the right place. Like title Tuesday or a child. I mean, it's a no brainer. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, maybe I should think a little bit more about rearranging my schedule, but uh, no, yeah, it's yeah. is, is, is tough at the moment. On the topic of strong players and OTB, um, I do kind of want to talk a little bit about the recent chess news, which is that chess.com has unbanned Hans Niemann. So he actually played and streamed title Tuesday today. Um, which is, I tweeted about this. I think it's a very strange way for this whole saga to end. Not, not that I was looking for blood or anything or countersuit or something. I think it's, you know, adults being adults is probably a good thing. But like one of the things I've been thinking about in hindsight was this chess.com cheating report. And I know that you're like a data scientist. And one thing I, so I mean, first of all, I'm wondering, I assume you've read that report. Yeah, I think I actually, i I believe I did a sort of mini episode on perpetual chess where we discussed that right when it came out. So I can say as somebody who is data science adjacent that um, one of the big problems that I had with that report, which I never really discussed um, and why I think it's like super cursed is that all these metrics that they were like kind of plotting cons against were all using their in like kind of internal data. They don't tell you how they came up with that or, you know, what, you know, how that's actually derived. And I know that chess.com is pretty closed with their data. Like I can't just go and like download every chess game I've ever played on chess.com without some API and all these other extra steps. And certainly like, I can't just take like bulk data, like I can with Lee chess, but for stuff like this, where they were like making these statements about Hans, they don't even tell you like how this, a lot of these things are calculated explicitly over like 72 pages. To me, that was like very, very strange. Um, and I think I missed that episode of, with you and and uh, Ben. So that's something I kind of want to circle back to now. Because for, for me, I think good practice, if you're going to like do something with data is to tell people how you did it. But that's maybe just me from like my research side and like what I'm doing now. No, yeah, I definitely, I think I'm with you most of the way there. And I mean, well, one thing I like, like I haven't, you know, I haven't reviewed this recently, but one thing that struck me like with the benefit of hindsight now is like, a big part of the case against Hans, well, there are sort of like two sides to it. One is like the accuracy side where you um, compare his moves against the engine moves in some way and say, okay, like he's, you know, he's playing too well. He's playing too accurate. This is impossible. So like that's one sort of line of argumentation. The other one is the improvement side. Like he, he improved too fast, you know, too quickly. With, that's impossible and i feel like um subsequent events have really dismantled the whole he improved too fast side because like the whole argument is right like he improved um faster than anyone else in history he couldn't possibly have done that so he must be cheating um i think depending on how you slice the data you can either say he improved faster than anyone else in history or you could say he improved as fast as like a lot of talent, you know, very elite talented players. And I'm more on the latter there. But then my my point here is after this whole Magnus um, cheating scandal, like he continued to play a lot and perform at a very high level. I think he's, ha he's had a few bad tournaments recently. Um, so he's trying to back down, but the thing like I don't I don't think anyone seriously thinks he's not a really strong 
player, like a 2650 plus player at this point. It's just very clear that he is that good at chess. So any argument um, anyone had about he couldn't have gotten that good that quickly, well, like he did. Like we know he did now. So, and, and there's kind of this feeling of like, well, okay, it's not the greatest argument, but there's a lot of argument. But it's like a lot of bad arguments don't add up to a good argument, you know? So I know, I know he admitted to cheating online, which is like very not cool. And yeah, that's not great. But um, yeah, I, I never felt like the, the over the board evidence was really anywhere near conclusive. Yeah, I think the way you slice the data is definitely, um, it's a very good point. Like you see a lot of things done like by calendar year or by calendar month. But what about ELO rating per game or per tournament? That tells you a completely different story. And um, I saw, um, well, on the other hand, I saw a tweet, I think it was by Yoshi Iglesias. And she said that, you know, Hans in the 62 games before the, you know, the legendary no-show between Hans and Magnus, um, that it's like 2,700-ish performance rating, and now it's like 2,600-ish performance rating in 145 games. And so that shows you that there was cheating before and there's not after. But really, like, um, this is why I think data science is such a hard discipline and, like, anything with big data is so difficult because, like, you really can find a lot of ways to argue different things with the same data set and so there there has to be like practical ways that you make your argument based on because i can i i one of the first things i remember i think it was by this guy ponalize on twitter he made this um thing where he basically like tried to statistically sample hans's streak before the Sinkfield cup and his conclusion which now to me just as reads as funny is like well if hans is a 2700 player that's like super impossible and super unlikely. But if he's a 2,600 player, well, then he's way too good. And so he used these like distributions to show this when the argument you're really just saying is, yeah, he's about 2,650, which seems like that's where he, that seems yeah, like where he take. ended up. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, a big, um, it's always sort of a big tell in data. Like whenever you see these weird, unmotivated numbers, like, you know, 62 games before, 143 moves after. Um, that can definitely be a tell that, like, the data has kind of been manipulated to to produce a certain conclusion. Because, like, I mean, not necessarily. Sometimes there's legitimate reasons for that. But, like, whenever you see something like that, you have to wonder. It's like, okay, well, did you try that a bunch of different ways until you got the result you wanted? Like, where where did you come up with these very weird specific numbers? Um, and I think, you know, what you're saying about people trying lots of, lots of different kinds of analysis, I mean, that's exactly what you've seen with this Han saga, because you had this thing that captured the imagination of everyone, you know, especially the whole chess world. So all of these people all over the world were very motivated to do their own analysis, often with their own biases. And like, yeah, of course, what you see is like, most people come up with something that like supports their biases. Yeah. And I mean, actually, on that note, um, just one thing I wanted to say about um, the Han stuff. We were almost like a year since that happened. And um, I ended up gaining like a lot of Twitter followers from that because I made this thread about some lie that Hans told and his explanation that he, he had prepared this like opening brilliancy that p people are now kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt for. But he like it ends up being on Hikaru's stream and all that. And I was just like getting a ton of followers for this thread I made. And 
Um, now that I've like actually worked around like some like really cool chess players like in person and like just met some you know very cool people over the years, uh, I sort of regret doing that because even though I personally would like whatever I think about Hans personally or you know whether he cheated or not, um, I do really feel sorry for him that he was like you know this he's still a teenager like maybe he's like 19 now i think and like all this stuff happened to him like he became like like the most hated person on the world for or among them like up there with like you know really really despicable people and he's just like a guy with like a certain demeanor like his like he made this like i'm back video which is incredibly cringe but like you know he's 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 a young guy he's has this persona that like he's a bad boy chess and all that um yeah i i do kind of and i think like from that regard i'm kind of happy to see that chess.com and and all of them put it behind them and like as much as i will kind of like criticize chess.com for how they privatize their data like danny ranch had said from the beginning that he was looking forward to reconcile with hans like from that september evening or whatever so um yeah all that's to say uh that um yeah, I think that's something that more people should keep in mind. Chess World is like insanely small. Like you're talking about, you know, knowing Hikaru personally, and now like you guys are clearly on you know very different awesome paths in the chess world. And um, uh, yeah, but you see, like there, that's still a connection there. Um, and like it's very easy to kind of speculate, but like people in the chess world are not like Formula One racers or NBA players. Like they're they're like 99.9% of them are like very much people you could just like reach out by email to and talk to, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's another weird part of this whole, and this is not based on like data at all. It's just like vibes, but I mean, I think a lot of it was just like some people just really didn't, didn't like Hans on a personal level. Cause like the truth is, um, I mean, I don't think this is like a big secret. Like a lot of grandmasters have been caught cheating online. Like, you know, there's like lists and stuff out there and um, not everyone has incurred this kind of backlash. So, I mean, that's, you know, I don't, I don't like, I don't know Magnus Carlsen. I, I played Hans once, but like, I'm not, I don't know Hans. I haven't sp mm -hmm. spoken to Hans in many years. So like, I don't have any inside info here, but there's clearly just a very big like personal element to this whole story as well that, I mean, maybe we'll never know exactly the details of it. Yeah, I mean that that's another thing that I would say one of the takeaways that 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 I have um that I think that a lot of this was it it felt personal. Um and that's, you know, maybe why it's a good thing that as, as strange as I find kind of the ending and everything and how it was in hindsight like probably good that it ended this way because like the rumor on Reddit is that Nijad Abasov um who just had this remarkable result in the candidates. Sorry, well he's going to qualify for the candidates, but he had this remarkable result in the World Cup, uh, but the rumor is that he had an account on chess.com that was caught cheating and it got banned and it got replaced. This is a Reddit that, but they extrapolated this actually from, you know, if it's true, because I don't want to slander anybody, if it's true, they took that from the chess.com cheating report where they listed a whole list of, you know, people with their ratings and FIDE ratings and like their bans and like, you know, what they did and stuff like that in the report. And so like, yeah, I think that, that, um, it's I think this serves as a kind of a just a lesson on what to do and what not to do when um, handling such a landmine like this. It does. Um, I mean, it does leave a lot of questions open, right? Because like the whole thing with this was it blew the lid off of this simmering 
cheating, suspicion, allegations, whatever that that a lot of top players seem to have been frustrated about for the long for a long time. Like I'm glad um Magnus and Hans and chess.com have resolved their differences, but like I'm not sure how much closer we actually are to handling the problem of cheating in chess in like a big picture way. Like doesn't seem like much, a, a ton has changed there. I don't think anything has. I mean, I, I've I've read that like at this last um, World Cup that there was really good anti-cheating measures. Like um, I saw some tweets about that. But yeah, I mean, you're you're on the money. And this is part of why I find it so strange is like, you know, we're still waiting on a FIDE commission about like whether Magnus Carlsen like violated the ethics code or whatever um or whether hans did i mean that, that's something that they said they would do it's been almost a calendar year and we haven't heard anything except from we're working on it and um yeah i, I think there you know again like if a top player was cheating i still think the most convincing argument i've heard about over the board cheating is you probably get a hail mary move sent to you every now and then and you just do that consistently enough and it bumps your rating up and you know, that's really terrifying because how do you actually stop that short of like TSA style patting people down and like, you know, looking through all of their um, <laughs> every little nook and cranny in a person's body. Like, how do you actually stop something like that? Like it's, it's, it's just scary. It's, it's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, um, yeah. On, I mean, over like, like to me online is even the much bigger concern than over, just like over the board, you do have to have like a pretty elaborate sort of clandestine, set up which you can sort of try to combat but i mean i think the fundamental challenge with online is just it's so easy you know all you have to do is look at like essentially any device anywhere um and you know yeah that you can and should combat that with like cameras and you can check things about people's browser their accuracy but um at the end of the day i think it's like a very hard thing to police yeah, and I think it's something that only get harder. Maybe that's why Chess. I think that is probably why Chess.com claims they don't give out their data. They don't want someone to make some, you know, cheating algorithm or Google Chrome extension that you just like put in and it can figure out when to give you a move, when not to give you a move, or stuff like that. I'm sure they have their reasons, but um, I my frustration over the Chess.com like not giving out public data is just that they have so much of it, and like I I. Um, I do feel like chess tech is sort of in desperate need of modernization. Um, and chess.com, I think, should be kind of leading this frontier instead of, um, you know, whatever they do, like more streamers playing more Twitch tournaments. Like, I think that they they have the, you know, you use this nice word wherewithal. Uh, they have the wherewithal to do something and really lead this kind of revolution. And, you know, they've already like bought every company in the chess world anyway. <laughs> but uh so I, I don't know i find it very disappointing that if they're not going to do it at least give it to people who are interested in doing that like i what i would like what what people like you or me could could do with uh with like a bunch of public chess.com data is like you know could revolution you know how you figured out to, you know i one night of three is a chessable course right why where does it come down to it's you know 50 percent win rate and it's like not played so much right so that, there's just like stuff like that that is like low-hanging fruit yeah, I mean they they do have it. They do have the API that you can use, which is, um, I mean maybe it's not the most user friendly thing, but you can get the data. But um, yeah, it's true they don't like. You can't just access like a huge database of chess.com games very easily, I guess. Um, yeah, actually, I'm I'm working on a few projects right now. One is um, 
I, I just am uh, uh, doing this thing with my friend um, Dan Bach, who's like another. Yeah, he's chess, yeah, yeah. Chess, I see a bold he, move by Dan on Twitter. Exactly, another yeah. another chess chess Twitter personality. But um, you know, we had this idea that uh, like a really good thing to review um, when when you review your games, especially online games, is the moves where you spent the longest time. Uh, you know, so not only the moves where you made a mistake, but the moves where you really got stuck and spent a long time, because that tends to indicate when you were very confused. Um, so we were working on like a little website that would um show you like those positions from your recent games. And in fact, uh, yeah, I need to I, I need to write the code to to grab the games from chess.com. That's on my to do list right now, uh, which which is which is possible. It's It's not really that hard to do. Um, yeah, I mean, using API is not the hardest thing to do, but there's other stuff like, I don't know, and I wrote some like long Twitter thread about this a while ago about like how there's no real, like, I don't know how much of a sports fan you are, but there's no real like reference site for chess in the way that there is for baseball and football and, and basketball, even though we have all these professional players who've been playing for many years um, and kind of thinking about what that site might look like someday um but chess.com has all this data that they could you know from title tuesdays and from champions chess tours and that's just like there and they that's not easy to access if at all like you have to really look for a subset and stuff like that and do this for untold amounts of players and then it's not even clear to me whether you know what the legality is i mean okay i know they're not copywriting other chess games but like um, I, it's not really clear to me like what happens if you're using their data and like how they feel about it. So um, I don't know. I just think considering that they're by far the largest chess company in the world. And, you know, honestly, one of the biggest gaming companies in the world looks like it's where they're heading towards. If they ap- apparently have like close to a billion dollar valuation um, per the this lawsuit and other stuff, you know, uh, play Magnus group being bought, you know, they're, they're, valued at like 800 million or something like that so they they are primely poised to do this or at least let you know share this with people um in an open source way yeah and i i do love this idea of a chess stats web sort of one stat site to rule them all because there are i mean there are a lot of of chess stat sites out there and i mean some really good ones but um they tend to i think at the moment they all sort of have part of this bigger picture uh so something that would kind of bring bring all that together and like give chess fans a way to really dig into the data, um, you know, and preferably something that kind of looks nice and has a nice user experience. Um, yeah, I think that would be like huge for a lot of chess fans. I think it certainly would be a lot of fun to to go through and you know, so maybe that's something I'll do someday and uh, we'll let people know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have one more question I want to ask you. Um, just on the topic of like data science and stuff like that, is there, when, when you think about chess and data sciences and we, we were talking about alpha zero before we we're just talking about like chess.com data. I know that uh, also you mentioned Dan Bach, who I want to give a shout out to. Um, I followed a lot of his work on Twitter. He's doing very cool, very cool things with uh, Lee chess data and like um, just a lot of cool, interesting calculations and findings with, with data science. And also he's trying to like, uh, facilitate his own chess improvement um, with with like big data and his own personal data, which is cool. But I guess the question I want to ask you is, um, what do you th- like? Is there any application you can think of of data science? Um, I know it's a very broad field, but is there any kind of application 
of data science, um, whether it's like algorithms or or more theoretical stuff towards chess that hasn't really been done yet that you can think of? Yeah, I well, you know, I, I kind of did this um, series of, of, of player reviews where I was, I was calling it a database review of um, very various, I, I did a handful of players trying to take like more of, um, I think in chess, we tend to have like quite a granular view, you know, sort of analyzing one game at a time. But this, this idea was like, well, let's take a step back in the big picture, what's happening over many games. And I mean, I would say the results are, are, are kind of mixed. It was, it was, it was inspired by poker where like this type of approach is very common and very sort of natural to apply to poker. Um, I think, uh, like openings are like a very obvious direct application because you can like look at the performance um, by, um, you know, just how well, how well does the population store with an opening? How well do you score with it? You know, so there's like very direct and obvious applications there. Um, but I mean, that that's not really answering your question of like what has not been done. Um, I mean, I think... Um, I think one area that that to me seems like there should be improvement possible is like kind of metrics on like a move by move level. So this is definitely something you see in like a lot of like sports data analysis is like the more advanced it gets, um, the more they kind of do tend to break it down in a more granular level. Whereas like, you know, so like traditional basketball stats are per game, um, but people who are serious about basketball data now do a lot of like per possession stuff. And so, you know, it's like basically like the finest unit you can break it down to if you're able to do that, if you have that data tends to give you more information. So I think in chess, if you're looking, you know, if you get down to a move level as opposed, as opposed to a whole game level, there's potentially, you know, a lot of insight there, but it's, it's not, a, it's not, trivial to do because like like the most obvious starting point there is to look at the engine evaluation like the centipon score um but that's not straightforward because you can't just go i mean we've sort of been through this with a whole cheating thing you can't just look at how many centipons hans loses per move and compare that to someone because there's a lot of other factors like if you have a very quiet position with no tactics happening you're going to have very low average cent upon loss because it's kind of, I mean, it's it's like hard to make a big mistake. Whereas if you mm -hmm. have, if you're the kind of player who goes for super sharp openings, it's going to be the opposite. Even no matter how strong you are, you're going to have a lot of big mistakes. But there are also ways you can try to address that. And I think that could be um, really beneficial for chess players because one thing that's really difficult with chess improvement is um, it is really hard as we all know, to increase your rating for most people. Uh, and you typically go through these big plateaus and, in, you know, rating is is like a lag metric, meaning you only see it move when you've already accomplished the thing you wanted to do. So I think what you would love as a chess player and chess improver is what's called a lead metric. Like, like what is the metric that you can actually see that you're on the right track? And, you know, potentially some of these kind of move by move metrics that are like starting with a cent upon loss, but making some adjustments to make that more consistent um, and more relevant could maybe yeah. be helpful for chess players as far as like 
okay, my rating maybe is not going up very much yet, but I can actually see based on certain stats that I'm like making progress in certain areas. I really like um, your like lag and lag versus lead metric. And one thing I've always wondered, and this should actually just be possible with like lead chest data for somebody who's motivated enough is like, you could either do move by move or game by game or whatever. But if you just took like a sample of like tens of thousands of lead chest accounts across the rating ladder and just try to like plot like um, year to year improvement versus year to year accuracy or something like that, or by month, however, whatever you like, you can average it over whatever time period you want. Um, and look for, you could do it by game, you could do it by move, you could do it by by other metrics, maybe by like, you know, how consistent your repertoire is. I, I, I don't really know. But my point is like, if you could just find something like that, like let's say you find some really strong correlation between, which I suspect is true, which just like um, blunder percentage and rating. Because I would intuitively believe, what I've always tell my friends is like, if you want to improve like from beginner to intermediate, just stop blundering. That's but like, how? <laughs> yeah, but how? I mean, that, yeah, training is a different story, but like, that's that's a very good point. But I mean, just like, um, the but how is a big question, but like, that could become a metric if that's like really tightly correlated over like you know tens of thousands of games or accounts or whatever with um rating, then that's like a very easy metric to be like, okay, and like this month, um, I decreased my blunder percentage by like 10%. And, uh, you know, that that's, I, and uh, maybe that's, yeah, yeah bl like blunder percentage is a great example of um, something you can just pull out of the data that already exists pretty easily. There is actually someone, um someone did a project pretty similar to what you're suggesting with like, looking at like kind of improvement arcs of, of a bunch of players on Lee chess. Um, there's like a GitHub repo. This is like a great project. Um, I can't remember all his conclusions. I think one of them that was kind of interesting was well, one thing is like most people don't improve very much, like just by playing games on Lee Chess, like you're super not guaranteed to improve. I think he found on average that people who improve the most play a sort of medium amount of games, which was kind of interesting. It's like the people who never play don't improve and the people who I guess are just like binging playing an absurd number of games, maybe don't improve uh, uh, so much either. But but maybe the people who are playing sort of a moderate amount consistently were the most likely to improve but you know what i it, it i i like your point too because i think another great direction is like and this is less so maybe analyzing the data we have and more that we need to like gather some data or do some studies or something but it's like i feel like as a chess improver there's actually we really don't know the answer to like very basic questions like is blitz good or bad for your chess um or you know, what is more important, studying or playing? And, you know, maybe maybe these two questions are even like too broad to be meaningful. But I feel like we, we just kind of have a lot of experience and intuition and going off what, you know, what grandmasters say. But there's not like a ton of really solid information about what actually works to get better at chess. Yeah, I mean, furthermore, uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to the the GOAT, German eleven. Uh, who has played? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know who has played six hundred thousand plus games on Leeches and is uh, fourteen thirty one in Blitz. Um, so he's the he's the chess binge king, and uh, I will I will fight for his honor. Um, he's I think he's the king of Leeches, honestly. 
um because you can get to uh like 3000 someday if you're motivated enough you'll never get to 600,000 games on Lee Chess. That's like a completely different level of of um you know <laughs> that that's like it's a completely different Olympus to climb. Um but yeah, I think you know talking about big questions, you know whether it's data science or astronomy or like the stuff that I'm really interested in. Yeah, like maybe you can't answer them um with data but you can try uh and you can gain good insights into those problems anyway which is what uh which is what we do in in science right we try to use whatever resources are available to us and get those resources and study them extensively and try to see what that um what that tells us and i i think you i don't know we'll ever learn whether blitz is good or bad for you or whether that even matters right because it is something that exists but it can help people um figure out like what role that should play in their improvement um you know, maybe it's like ice cream or maybe it's like avocado, um, but, you know, whatever it is, all I know is it's really good. It's really fun. And uh, but we should still not like I think that these are just kind of things that are right there for people to do. And so uh, I just want to treat people like we did last year, their episode to uh, learn a bit of Python and uh, try to download some games because like it's really, really, really cool if you have the ability to do it. And it's a really nice way to supplement your study of chess. But yeah, I mean, aside from that, you, there's there's just a lot of cool stuff you can do with uh, with data science that you can just explore and kind of supplement your your chess journey without uh, needing to buy fancy programs or whatever. Yeah, and I think you know, honestly, it's if you're already interested in chess, it is a great way to learn how to program because a lot of the data is very accessible. Um, there are Python libraries for for working with chess that are really good. Um, so you can actually get up to speed and like be doing research and answering questions with a pretty pretty minimal like coding ability. Like you can really get in there and start start doing some stuff that's really fun um pretty quickly. Yeah, you can you can with one line of code, you can download all your games or access all your games, whether it's on chess.com or leechess or these APIs you can use. Um, you'll have to know what like a PGN or FEN is, but chances are you already know what those are. If you're like a chess enthusiast who's like serious about improving, you know what those are. So um, yeah, then the sky's the limit. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff that I've done with Python in the last year, just like on the side with, you know, chess packages and whatnot. So yeah, I just, I think that's just kind of what something I want to just say, like just encourage people to do that kind of stuff and then uh, tell people about it and share your GitHub repos. And then we can build a little chess data science community which doesn't really exist yet yeah there's there's a few people doing it but um yeah i guess it's not it's 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 pretty small at the moment i guess we'll have to wait and see for the first uh you know like those academic conferences maybe they'll have at a uh, norway chess down the line oh, yeah, have a, some... a chess data conference that would be really fun actually that would be that would be worth organizing actually probably and you know if there's enough there's a critical mess but that's for another time um, but on that note, I do want to thank you for coming on the podcast again. And uh, yes, uh, Nate's course on the ready is out on Chessable now. There is a masterclass, as Nate said, there's a masterclass on September 12th, 2023. And if you're listening to this after that, uh, I think the video is still there afterwards. So you should check it out. It's uh, it's about fighting against the isolated queen pawn, which will win you a lot of rating if you manage to do that uh, repeatedly. And it supplements Nate's course nicely, so you should definitely check that out. I do also want to thank Chessable for sponsoring this podcast. As always, uh, you could go to chessable.com slash 64podcast to check out my favorite courses. 
Uh, Nate, is there anything else you want to add? How can we reach you? Uh, any words of wisdom before you depart for the show? Yeah, just uh, my, uh, you know, my Twitter at Nate Solon and, and also my uh, newsletter, which is uh, swishandzug.substack.com. I, I write something every week. Those are probably my main things online. But yeah, thank, thanks. Great to talk to you again, David. So I hope we do it again. It. Always yeah, a pleasure. Yeah. And I'm excited to find you in your next uh, podcast appearance because I know you've been doing some of those. So thanks for stopping by here. And yes, actually subscribe to the newsletter as well. It's one of the best. I think it's my favorite chess newsletter. I'm I'm a I am subscribed and I I really enjoy reading your posts. I've learned a lot. And uh, yeah, follow Nate on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at sixty four podcast. Uh, thanks for checking out the show, and I'll see you next time. Take it easy.